As U.S. Secretary of State, he made a point to talk about religious freedom in every country he visited, even if they didn't particularly want to hear it. Hi, I'm Stuart Shepard. This is First Liberty Live. If you haven't already, uh, on FirstLibertyLive.com, you can click on the subscribe button and we will send you a notification every time a new episode comes out. Uh, it's especially helpful for the ones that aren't on a Thursday. For example, we've got one coming up later this month. We'll be live at the U.S. Supreme Court. And uh, if you want to know when that's happening, as it's happening, just subscribe. We'll send you a notification so you don't miss a thing. Recently, at a First Liberty event, our president, Kelly Shackelford, sat down with former U.S. Secretary of State Mike Pompeo. And it was a great conversation, and we thought you'd really enjoy hearing what they talked about on stage there. So for this week's episode, we're going to run the entire conversation just for you so that you can listen in. Okay, I've got I've to start with the thing that everybody says I have to ask you, which you, you, I know you get this at the beginning of every discussion. How did you lose the weight? And, and, and how, how, why did you do this? It was quick. Oh my goodness. Uh, well, first of all, thank you for having me. It's wonderful to be at First Liberty. It's great to be with such um, amazing believers, such patriots. Uh, thank you all for having me here tonight. And as I was telling somebody, there's that big basket of rolls on your table. That's how I did it. Just push it away. It, it, it is funny because I look at those pictures at, through the years as CI director and secretary of state, and you can watch the weight coming on. Uh, and I, I did it for the reason you all know, right? I did it because I, I'm praying that uh, my son who got married last summer, six months now, so far so good. Um, I, I'm praying that before long we'll have grandchildren and I want to be around for them. <laughs> Yeah, I want to I start with just uh, growing up. Uh, your family, I guess your grandparents came from Italy. Um, I mean, you, you're kind of an underachiever, you know. I mean, number one in your class from West Point, number one at Harvard Law School. So, you know, uh, what, how, how did you get made into the guy you are? Obviously, an incredibly successful person. What was the major influences on your life that made you who you are? Oh, goodness. Um... You know, a, a couple things. So my, my parents, uh, neither of them graduated from college, but they were determined. I have a, a younger brother and older sister separated total by about 28 months, 29 months. Um, and they infused in each of us uh, an intensity, a focus um, about to be disciplined, self-disciplined in a way that I think has made an awful lot of difference in my life. Uh, there have been days I haven't pulled that off completely, and there are video clips out there that my mother would not be proud of. <laughs> <laughs> where I've used an adult word or two. They're, they're in the book as well. Um, but they, they, they always understood that, that this role of parenting mattered and took it seriously and were always around for my, my sister Michelle, my brother Mark, and me. And so my mother was a good Kansas conservative gal. Uh, my dad was a liberal uh, from New Mexico, but, you know, mom got it right. Uh, but my, my, one of my favorite lines is the, uh, when I was a member of Congress, the first time I spoke on the House floor, my, my mother had passed away, but my father was watching C-SPAN. He'd retired. And uh, he calls me that night and says, Mike, I watched you on the floor of the House of Representatives. I was so proud of you. And then you opened your mouth. <laughs> uh, you know, the, the, so the second thing to your question 
is that when I was a cadet, there were two older cadets, uh, two guys that were uh, two years ahead of me, and they were the one that brought me to the Lord. Hmm. Uh, my, my parents took me to Sunday school. I didn't, it was an important part of who I was growing up uh, in high school. I, I was going to be an NBA basketball player. I didn't, who, need, <laughs> who needs Christ, right? Uh, but these two young men uh, taught me to read the Bible, taught me about the importance of Jesus, and truly brought me to the Lord. Uh, and if you said, what are the two most important things? It was my parents and those two young people as uh, influencers in my life. There are a lot of great people along the way, but those two really set the course for me. So, talking about the military, what, what drew you to the military? Why did you serve in the military? And then what was it like? What, what did you learn from that, that process? I know you became a captain, but uh, what were the big learning lessons? You know, my, my father had been in the Navy, but I was, he was in the Korean War for a couple of years. But that wasn't really the reason. I just, I'd seen this place, I'd watched Army-Navy football and, and came to see that as a real opportunity, a, a place where merit mattered, where if you worked hard, told the truth, kept your faith, good things could potentially happen. It, it was that then. <laughs> I, uh, I'm very worried about what's happening throughout the military. You spoke about this, but even at these important leadership institutions, uh, they're talking about pronouns. By the way, thanks for getting my pronouns right tonight. Appreciate that. Um, <laughs> but more seriously, these institutions matter to us all. There's a lot of veterans here this evening. Uh, this is a bedrock of our society, uh, having, uh, having the chance to train that next generation of leaders. And if you ask me about my time in service, it was, it was absolutely that. I, I learned, if you read the book, um, I, I, all the things I know about leadership came from that five years because I saw great leaders and I saw some that weren't as good. Uh, my, my first platoon sergeant, so an NCO, he was 20 years older than me, named Sergeant First Class Pretree, uh, really set my course in the military. I was a brand new lieutenant, of course, so I knew everything. He was a senior NCO. He actually knew something. Uh, and the first time I met him, we, we were in the field. I had just shown up. And I walked up, and he's the junior person, so he salutes me. And then Sergeant Pretory says, Lieutenant, you'll do really well if you'll just shut up for a while. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, the truth is, he taught me to listen. And I had an awful lot to learn from my soldiers. And I, I, you, know, you were talking about diversity in the military. My first tank gunner, by the time I kind of figured it out, uh, was a kid named Private Syed. Uh, he was an immigrant to the United States. Uh, I'm sure I'm a Muslim, um, and I chose him to be my tank gunner because I wanted to stay alive. <laughs> right? So today he'd be a diversity choice, and I'd get promoted because I picked <laughs> Private Syed. But I didn't pick him for that reason. I picked him because it really mattered that he was good and excellent and cared. And we've got to do that in every one of our institutions. We've got to get that right. And it taught me as a leader, uh, take strip away race, strip away everything other than is this, the, is this the person who, when things are tough, when the moment matters most, will have prepared himself or herself for that moment and put them on your team? And if we, if we don't do that in our schools, if we don't do that in the military, if we don't do that in the workplace, and today, you know, I saw it at the State Department, it's a wreck. Um, if we don't grab this back, this idea of merit and a true equality uh, based on the mission, uh, the, the country's headed in the wrong way. So you... you get out of the military and you go to Harvard Law School, 
course, you know, underachieving there to number one in your class, or whatever, you know, the head of the I, I was bar. affirmative action at Harvard Law School, yeah. actually. <laughs> uh, I was, uh, they had to pick one guy from the military, and I was it. I think so. you did okay. <laughs> um, so what law, that was kind of quick. Like, you, you did really well, obviously, in law yeah. school. You, you went to a major firm, but that didn't last too long. So what was your law experience like? Uh, you know, it was fine. <laughs> I, I worked with smart people, it was a, a good firm, uh, but I had this chance uh, at about the two-year mark to start a company, a business, with three of my best friends in the whole world, uh, all West Point classmates of mine, and so I, we ended up buying a company in Wichita, Kansas, and uh, quit the firm, which was a crazy discussion with the senior partner. Uh, I walked in and said, yeah, I, I'm... He says, are you, I'm, I'm leaving the firm. And he, he was very worried. He says, where are you going? What, what other firm are you headed to? I said, actually, actually, actually I, I'm going to leave. I'm going to go start a business with some friends. And he was relieved. And he said, what business? I don't really know yet. <laughs> and then, uh, I, I'm confident he called the recruiting department and said, how'd this guy get through? Um, um, but came, went to a much better place, a place I was much happier trying to build something. And uh, it was also a blessing because that's where I, I moved to Kansas and met my wife, Susan. Well, and so obviously you got that entrepreneurial kind of gene or whatever or, or desire. How, what was that like? What, what did you learn there uh, in that time period, you know, start, the aerospace company and what you were doing? You know, as I reflect back on it, I think about my time as a member of Congress as well. I did that for, uh, goodness, about a decade. I ran two small businesses for about a decade and then lost my mind and ran for Congress. Uh, <laughs> As I reflect back on it, the, the folks who I came to value most who were serving alongside me in Congress were people who'd been in the real world, who had, had, had been in the workplace or had run a business and who understood what it means to families to have jobs and to create wealth so that those families can do good things for their own kids too. Um, I could see that. I remember we had, we had a moment where we almost lost the entire business. Uh, it was right after 9-11. And we had some 500 families, depending on Brian and me. I was the CEO. He was the chief operating officer. He's still my best friend in the world. Um, and w we had to act in the moment, right? We had to get this right. And uh, we, we shrunk to about 280 people. Uh, we were ultimately, over the course of three and a half years, offered a job back to every single person who we couldn't keep in the crisis moment. Um, but when I, saw, when I saw leaders who hadn't experienced that, who hadn't had to deliver that, they can't possibly think about all the complexity of regulation. Uh, we, Brian and I were praying, right? We were, we were counting on there being something bigger than us to help get this back because what had taken down the country, this attack on America, was bigger than us, something we would have never imagined when we entered business that we'd be facing. Um, and so as I, as I think about my time there, it taught me about how... It, it takes real resolve and faith in moments of crisis to pull organizations through that moment when it looks like there's just nothing there, there's no, there's no path forward. And we had great shareholders that helped us. We had uh, a great set of financial supporters who helped us through, but it took real resolve from the team that we kept to build that thing back. So what you mentioned, what did cause you to run? I mean, you ended up being an eight, uh, four-term congressman, eight years, I guess. Uh, what, what, or I don't know how long until Trump tapped you for CIA, but yeah. what, what caused you to run for Congress? Uh, two words, really. Barack Obama. <laughs> uh, and if you add uh, three more words, the Affordable Care Act, mm. uh, you'd probably complete the picture. I, uh, 
I, I was watching them t make it really hard to run our business. And uh, the challenges were great. And then opportunity, as the Lord always does, the opportunity presented itself. Uh, the fellow who was my congressman was trying to run for the Senate, so the seat was open. And so my wife and I prayed and decided this was the place to go. Uh, it wasn't the first time I ran for office, though. The, the first time I ran for office, um, oh, uh, anybody here on the homeowners board in your homeowners association? <laughs> you, by the way, those of you who raised your hand, you might be the secretary of state someday. Uh, I, nev I never dreamed it. I, I was, at that time, I was, I was motivated because they were going to make requirements about shake shingles in our neighborhood. And to this day, I do not remember what side of the argument on, but dang it, it mattered. Uh, uh, Never give an inch on shingles. It's like <laughs> fight, fight, for, fight for roofing material. Uh, no, I, look, I came to see the country was headed in the wrong direction, and I had some friends say, you should think about this, and we did and decided to run. I was, uh, I was the eighth Republican in the primary. It was a crowded field. Nobody knew who I was. We'd been, my wife and I were teaching fifth grade Sunday school. Uh, by the way, teaching fifth grade Sunday school, sing single best preparation for being the Secretary of State. Like, <laughs> <laughs> Don't laugh, I mean, right? Anybody done church politics? Anybody tried to keep a fifth grade boy in his seat? Yeah, forget it. <laughs> Vladimir Putin's got nothing on those kids. Uh, but we, we, were, we were blessed. We decided to run, and we were fortunate enough to make our way through the primary and became a congressman in, in that big class, the big... Tea Party class of 2010. So was the Trump, I mean, did you have a relationship with Trump? How, how did you end up getting picked to be CIA? I mean, what, uh, I th was that a surprise to you? Uh, off, the, off the charts, surprising. <laughs> I, I had never met Donald Trump until the day I went in, in to interview to be CIA director. Indeed, I had campaigned for Senator Rubio vigorously against <laughs> President Trump, which you should know if anybody knows Mr. Trump. You should know he reminded me of that with some frequency. <laughs> Any time we would disagree, he'd say, oh, yeah, yeah, you're the Rubio guy. <laughs> uh, yeah, yes, yes, sir, I am, and working for President Trump. Uh, no, I'd never met him. It came from, I actually, it was Mike Pence, who I had known and who was, had been given the task of filling out the cabinet, and he called me and literally out of nowhere, uh, said, would you consider joining the administration? I said, of course. Called me back a couple days later. Literally, first conversation was on a Sunday. Uh, he calls me back on Monday. Uh, says, would you think, would CIA be of something of interest to you? So, you know, I play hard to get. No, you know, I don't know. Uh, <laughs> and Wednesday, I interviewed with President Trump at Trump Tower. And on Friday morning of that week, I was announced as the nominee be to CIA director. Uh, the, the Lord at work uh, my son, you should know, for the first time, thought I was cool. Like, you're the, <laughs> like, like you're maybe the CIA director. All right. <laughs> Turn, turns out you were right. You are cool. Uh, uh, but no, it was, um, it was, think about that. So at that point, um, f five years before that, I was minding my own business, raising my son, teaching Sunday school at Eastminster Presbyterian, uh, trying to figure out how to hit a forehand, like playing tennis. <laughs> And you know, five years later, I'm going to be running the, the world's most prestigious espionage organization. Uh, it was overwhelming, and there's only one thing. My wife and I just prayed and worked and did our best to try and prepare for the confirmation battle, which was all of that. And then uh, when successful there, 
trying to lead that important organization. What, I mean, obviously you can't tell us a lot, but I mean, <laughs> what, what was it like? And then the big question is, are you concerned about this politicization of, it seems like the CIA, the FBI, the, this Twitter stuff that comes out? I mean, yeah. what's your perspective on that, having been a director and now watching this occur? So, yeah, I mean, so you, you, you walk in there, and I knew it a little bit. I'd served on the House Intelligence Committee, so from afar I had seen it. By, by the way, watch all the movies, love the spy stuff. Uh, but knew I was walking into a highly politicized entity. My predecessor was a fellow named John Brennan. <laughs> you can boo, it's all good. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, they, they, they had engaged in an activity for the months before that related to the, what became the Russia hoax, right? The, it was mostly an FBI deal, but the CIA had had a role in it as well. And so we knew we had a lot of work to do to build the team out, to get the right people in place. Uh, and there were, lots of, there were lots of elements of this. So we did. But in every one of these organizations, most of the folks are great people, especially the CIA. The State Department is a more complicated problem. But the CIA, a lot of soldiers, sailors, airmen, Marines who've left the military come to CIA. They just, these kids just want to put the dagger in their mouth and swim the river, right? Uh, they're not political. They're just, they're warriors. Uh, I call them pipe hitters in the book, right? These are people who are willing to fight through just about anything. Uh, and so it was about unleashing them. And I had a boss that let me do that, who let me take it back to the foundational ideas when the OSS was created, the precursor to the CIA. So we did, we did amazing work. And, you know, by the way, I, I know a lot of you have told me you read my book. I hope you enjoyed it. It was really good before the CIA cleared it. <laughs> it's still good, but it was really good. Uh, you know, so... So you had, to clean, you, had, you had to clean it up only in the sense of you needed to remind them what they were doing, what the mission was. I'll give you a good example. We, we'd come across this problem where there was counseling for CA officers who were having problems. Uh, imagine, right, you've, you've got an alcohol problem or there's a problem with your marriage and you're looking for counseling. And uh, there was counseling, but it was hard because there wasn't faith-based counseling anywhere. And uh, if you go in and say, well, I have this problem, the first thing the counselor will say is, well, what do you do for a living? <laughs> and of course, they can't answer that. Uh, you know, I, I, I work for the State Department. No, I'm a, no, I work for the CIA. So we built out a chaplain's corps inside the CIA from scratch. Uh, by the way, you mentioned General Boykin. It, what, General Boykin was one of the two people I went to to help me think about how to build that. The resistance from the CIA legal team was staggering. When you think about church and state and the complexity. But I hired a couple good old boy chaplains from the military who I had known, and we pushed through it, and it's still there today. So Christian counselors, uh, Jewish counselors, it's really remarkable. And importantly, it's not that I got that done, but today those men and women have this chance when they've got some problem in their life to see someone who, who understands that the, the Lord is there and can help them through their problems. It's truly one of the great legacies that I left at the CA put aside all the cool operations, the fact that we now have this institution that will be there for the next 50 years is really important. So most people don't realize you're the only person in the history of our country who's ever been the director of the CIA and the Secretary of State. Um, but I, so I want to jump to Secretary of State. Um, one of the things that I just 
was blown away by and still am is something that you did that was very different as Secretary of State, which is really prioritize religious freedom every time you met with another country. So explain that a little bit, how you did that. And um, I mean, you're meeting with people who don't believe in any religious freedom, and yet you start right out with that, kind of direct. So how did that work? What was the impact? Uh, Why did you do that? So it it was, I, I knew this would be important. So when President Trump asked me to be the Secretary of State, by the way, I was the 70th Secretary of State, uh, I was mindful he was the 45th president, so I knew there was a lot more turnover in my gig than his. <laughs> and I, I literally, I would check my phone every morning, make sure there wasn't a tweet, go to work. Uh, <laughs> so my daily, my, you can ask Susan, this is my daily model. Um, but President Trump was fantastic in the sense that he gave me the space to do this, was this, this central understanding of America and the foundational ideas of America as it impacted us around the world, how other countries thought about us. And, you know, I've never hidden the fact that I was an evangelical Christian. It's who I am. It's how it shapes my worldview. You, you can't talk or think about human rights and human dignity without understanding America's Judeo-Christian heritage. And your State Department wanted nothing to do with that. So I decided I would do my best to sort of push this to the forefront. And so uh, I brought a team around me, a big team, a woman named Pam Pryor, a fellow named Sam Brownback, former governor of Kansas, became our ambassador for religious freedom. We brought on a great guy named Elon Carr who ran our anti-Semitism efforts around the world. And then we built what we called the Ministerial for Religious Freedom. And it became something we could go back to time and time again. It was really, if you break it down, it was this simple thing. It was bring a bunch of religious leaders to the State Department who've never been there before and who always felt unwelcome because they were. And you should know, by the way, that, that's not political. That, the Republican secretaries before me hadn't been willing to take this on in a serious way either. Uh, they hadn't been to de- prepared to defend the unborn and religious freedom at the State Department in the way we all know it must be. And so we built these, uh, the largest human rights gathering ever at your State Department surrounded religious freedom. It was, it was amazing. And I wanted to do it for two reasons, Kelly. The, the first was it mattered to me that people everywhere could practice their faith. This is as a, as who Mike is. I, I worry about it here at home, but I thought my job now is to try and do this here and around the world. So I wanted to expand their scope of freedom. So we took on the Chinese Communist Party. I frankly, I took on the Pope when he wasn't doing enough to use his moral authority to expand religious freedom. And so we continued to build that from a faith perspective. But second, we're safer. America is more secure if other nations have more religious freedom. Countries that deny, this really gets to your point, Kelly, about it being this first most important freedom. Countries that deny religious freedom to their own people are almost certain to be hostile to a wonderful, glorious nation like ours. It is, it, you can draw the graph and they track nearly one-to-one. More religious freedom, more likely to be an American ally. Less religious freedom, more likely to be the Iranians or the Chinese Communist Party or Vladimir Putin, right? People who want to attack us. And so um, we were trying to build that out every place we could. It was an important pillar of our national security strategy was to expand religious freedom because they are so deeply, deeply connected. 
And you're right, as a personal matter, it was actually great because, you know, you're with Chairman Kim and he says something, you say, well, God bless you. And, uh, you know, <laughs> uh, it gets translated and you see the scowl and, you know, <laughs> it's, all, it's all good. Yeah. So, so who, do you th- who, who do you think is the greatest enemy of the United States? Oh, goodness. The, the biggest threat to our kids and grandkids from outside of our country is from Xi Jinping and his Communist Party. Uh, 1.4 billion people, uh, a massive economy that's intertwined with ours, and true intention to make us live in a place that is more like them. And they got a 25-year running start at us where we kind of turned the other way and thought, if we engage more with them, they'll become more like us. I need to critique historical decisions, but it didn't work. And we find ourselves in a place today where not only are they the greatest violator of religious freedom anywhere in the world, run the most Orwellian surveillance state in the world, holding a million of their own in what for all the world looked like concentration camps in the West. We declared, I declared it was genocide against the Uyghur Muslims in the Western part of China, but they, they, want, to, they want to export that. And that's the risk that Americans face today. It's inside the gates, we can see it. They're spying on us here. They have important powers inside our universities, uh, and they are, through their various propaganda tools, trying to deny our religious freedom here inside of America as well. And so this is the challenge of our generation in the same way that President Reagan confronted the Soviet Union. I'm confident that we will elect leaders that will get us to the right place, and we'll, we'll, we, will, we will, as Reagan said, we will win and they will lose. <laughs> <laughs> So let's connect that to a pretty complicated situation right now, which is uh, how do you, I mean, whether you're Secretary of State advising a president or let's say you're all of a sudden president, what do you do with this situation in Ukraine where it's kind of pushing China and uh, Russia together and it's, it's just highly complicated? How do you see it? I always go, when these things, I always go back to first principles. Right, we, we, were, we shorthanded our theory of the case as America first. So I always come back to, tell me why it matters to America, and once we decide it matters, and how much it matters, because you have to prioritize. Once you've decided it matters, and how much, what, what are the tools and resources you're prepared to use to protect the American interests? And I think it's inescapable that Vladimir Putin in control of another country in Europe is bad for us. I just think that's, not everybody in my party agrees with that. There are debates inside the Republican Party about this. Um, I think if you believe in religious freedom, you watch what's happening to the Ukrainian Orthodox Church and watch what Patriarch Kirill has done in the Russian Orthodox Church, and this, is, this matters to believers in America as well. Uh, and then finally, just as a pure economic matter, uh, the, the fact that we find ourselves today in a place where Vladimir Putin is now would be in control of an even larger part of the global economy than he was when he was back inside his own border. I don't think there's any doubt that this matters to the United States to do what we can to help the Ukrainians be successful at pushing Putin back. Uh, And so, you know, I I applaud President Biden for doing some of that, but man, he's been slow. And man, he's been late. And man, he seems, as in all things, just afraid to actually confront pure evil with the power of America. And no one's suggesting send in the 82nd Airborne. We, we, for four years, we deterred Vladimir Putin. 
right? He didn't do this on our watch. Um, he took a fifth of Ukraine under President Obama. He didn't do it again for four years, and then a few months later, he's back at attacking Europe. And we, but we didn't, nobody thought we were going to send a Marine unit there, right? We were using America's power at its best, and that's what, that's what President Biden missed here. And so we have the capacity to provide them the tools they need. We ought to provide them. We should have done it a year ago, faster, better, deeper, including intelligence work, uh, and we wouldn't be where we are today, where you still have Ukrainian kids being killed almost every night. And the risk that Vladimir Putin will do something even more stupid. Every day this conflict goes on. I mean, I spent enough time with Putin to know he's not going to give this up. There's not going to be a, a, a fight he walks away from until the costs exceed the benefits. It's just this is the, this is the simple math. And we've not done the things we could do best to make sure that the costs are greater for Putin and for the Russians. And when we do, I hope the Russian people will get what they deserve, which is a leader who will help build out Russia in a way that is decent and normal and with some element of freedom for religious believers inside of their country as well. What, um, one of the greatest things that happened under when you were Secretary of State was the Abrahamic uh, agreements with, over in the Middle East. So talk a little bit about that, and then also whether this recent um, Iran, China, um, Saudi Arabia agreement is endangering that in any way as well. Oh, goodness. I thought you were going to ask about the Chinese spy balloon. <laughs> Someone asked me the other day. If you had been there, would the balloon have flown over America for five days? <laughs> no. And I said, uh, it might have, and I would have been the former Secretary of State. <laughs> uh, so we, we came in with an understanding in the Middle East that as follows. Three, three simple ideas. We have one friend and partner, the nation of Israel. We're going to lock in tight. We're going to make clear that we're supporting them in everything they do. I issued a statement saying that Israel's not an occupying nation. Simple things. I, uh, it was, Israel, Israel turned out to be an enormous blessing because I got a CI director. I got to work with the best looking spy in the world, a fellow named Yossi Cohen, who was the head of Mossad. And we did great work, including the strike that took Qasem Soleimani down. Uh, it was amazing. You, you should know. It, it, it's worth spending just a minute on this because this gets to the central thesis in the Middle East. What, why does it matter to America? We want to make sure that our kids don't have to do what they've had to do too many times, to go fight and die in those places, right? How do you create security and prosperity in the Middle East, protect our friends in Israel, and deter the Iranians, the world's largest state sponsor of terror? Uh, and so we were determined to do that. And we, we had begun to lose deterrence. And this fellow, General Soleimani, was traveling uh, and when I was CI director, I had worked on a, a project that was perfect. Soleimani was headed from uh, Beirut to Damascus to Baghdad. And we learned of this in late December of 2019 on a mission to sign off on a project which would have killed hundreds of Americans. He was meeting his leader in Iraq, a fellow named Mohandas Mohandas, uh, and we figured it out. I flew to Mar-a-Lago on December 29th of 19 and briefed the president and said, we have a chance to take Soleimani from the battlefield. And 
He was amazing. He, I, I don't know that any other president would have done that, right? We, we moved the embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem. We recognized the Golan Heights. These were things, these were things that other, other, presidents, other, presidents had said they would, other presidents said they would do, and we built a team that made the recommendation to the president, and we did it. And by the way, unlike what Senator Kerry said, or Secretary Kerry said, no World War III. Uh, instead, we got peace. But it was beginning to, it was beginning to fray, and uh, so the president said, fine, you can conduct this mission. So I got up from the table at Mar-a-Lago, ready to leave, and I said, Mr. President, I, I need, I, we briefed him on it a couple months before this, uh, but now we were in execution mode. And so I said, Mr. President, uh, you should know that, um, remember, we're going to fire a Hellfire missile into an international airport. And you know, we've never done that before. <laughs> and he looks at me straight in the eye and he says, don't F it up. <laughs> uh, yes, Mr. President. Uh, by the way, Mr. President, not my missile. Department of Defense guys. It's these guys. Uh, you, you should, uh, by the way, to finish this out, we, um, on January 3rd, uh, we, the United States fired a Hellfire missile triggered from the United States from a, uh, sec from a secure location, hit a moving vehicle far enough away from the commercial airline that no civilian would be injured. Vehicle was going 60 miles an hour. It was at night, and we struck the vehicle within four inches of the intended target, killing only General Soleimani. No other country in the world, no other country in the world could pull that off. Uh, and so, and so when, we, when, we, when we think about our military and DEI and wokeness and all these things that you are doing this amazing work on, remember that's why we have to keep it in the same place on focused on its mission so that we can do these kind of things that had the geostrategic, th this is really important, great that we stopped that plot, fantastic, saved officers at my embassy in Baghdad, your embassy in Baghdad, but the Ayatollah in Iran stopped bothering us. Chairman Kim took note, Xi Jinping took note, all the world leaders said, these guys are either different or crazy or both, and we restored the deterrence that really gets to this Ukraine issue. And it's that deterrence that also got us the Abraham Accords because once Israel was confident that we would have their back, and once we began to put pressure on the regime in Iran, the Gulf state leaders, these Muslim leaders of Muslim Arab countries in the Gulf states could see that they had the space to make peace with the nation of Israel. And so bless them, um, Mohammed bin Zayed in the Emirates, the Crown Prince in Bahrain, Sudan, Morocco, all signed simple agreements with just simply saying Israel has a right to exist at, at its core. That's what the Abraham Accords were. And we should also credit, we should also credit the crown prince in Saudi Arabia. None of this happens without him. Uh, but none of this happens without Prime Minister Netanyahu, Donald Trump, and the teams around each of them who were prepared to go make the case that we could get this done in spite of the fact that we haven't resolved the conflict with the folks who live in the West Bank, Judea and Samaria, that we, despite the fact we haven't fixed that yet, we can build out a prosperous, secure Middle East. And in the end, that's good for our kids and our grandkids, especially those of us who have family members who are serving. Um, the chance they have to go do something really difficult in that place is just simply reduced. It's good stuff. So I, I've got to ask you the direct question. People are wondering, you know, there's talk of you possibly running for president. So are you running for president? <laughs> uh, 
I'd rather answer the weight loss question. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I, the truth is, Susan and I are praying, trying to figure out if this is the next call on us uh, in our lives. Um, these are important decisions who we elect as leaders in America, and it is important that the people who put themselves forward have thoughtfully and prayerfully considered that. So we're, we're doing that. It's not a dodge. We haven't, we haven't decided. You'll, you'll know really quick. I'll have an apartment in Dubuque uh, if we decide to go run. <laughs> Uh, but I, I'll, I'll say this, because uh, I, I do think this matters a lot. Two, two things to think about why I get asked this question from time to time. Uh, first is, make sure that whoever decides to put themselves forward are people who are prepared to make serious arguments on important things and can effectively execute the task that the American people have given them. Uh, I saw this for four years. We need committed people who know who they are and you talked about vetting justices and judges for appellate courts. Everybody's got a record. Take, take, take a serious look at it. Don't follow Twitter. Don't, it's all, by the way, I, can, I can send the best tweet in the world. Uh, ignore mine, too. Look, look at the things they've spent their lives doing, and have they been serious? Not that the, any of us ever get it right always, but make sure they've been serious about the things that matter most, the things that none of us can ever give an inch on. Make, make sure they're focused on that. Uh, from either political party, this is, the, this is the acid test for our leaders at every level, from school board to president of the United States. Uh, last thought that I, I, I always want, want to remind folks, everybody's focused on who's going to run. Focus on the what. They're, focus on the things that matter to you and to your family and to your church and to your community. And, and know this, that the, the presidential race is important. We need, we need someone that can work more than three hours a day. I, uh, right, I, I mean that. It's like, it's, I, I, it's, I don't mean that as a political shot. I mean that as the whole world's watching the President of the United States, and we can all see, we can all see that he's just not up to the task. Uh, but know that the most important decisions you'll make will be about things like tonight, uh, and who you put on your school board, and will you find state elected officials who will try and crush the teachers' union in your home state. These are the places that the, the, the places that really end up mattering is go back to these foundational documents, the Declaration of Independence, the Constitution, and the things that happen in our communities. And when we get those right, when we have all of these engines, when we have people who are prepared to go defend individuals who have taken a stand on their own faith, when, when we get those things right, then, then we're going to get 250 more great years in America. And we'll, we'll, find, we'll find great people to go be senators and congressmen uh, and people to run for president. But I, I, I remind everyone, the, the Homeowners Association board I was on mattered an awful lot, uh, right? The, the, fa the fact that, that I coached a, a basketball team, my son's basketball team, and you all are leaders at your Boy Scout troop and your PTAs, these are the places that have made America so special. And if we let... If we let religious freedom perish in those places, it doesn't matter what the 75th Secretary of State does. And truly, it's, um, it'll just be some dude on a vacation because our country will have lost its way. And when I come out to things like this tonight and see you all, I am heartened. I am encouraged. Um, I'm, I'm reminded of it. Uh, Churchill had this great line. Churchill said, America always does the right thing after it's exhausted all the other possibilities. <laughs> <laughs> and... Uh, and I heard a few of you tonight, we're close, we're getting there. Uh, 
I, I pray for all of you. Kelly, I pray for you and this amazing organization as well. Keep, keep your faith, keep working hard, and we'll get that 250 amazing years here in America. Thanks for letting me be here tonight, Kelly. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. And if you enjoyed that conversation, a lot of what they talked about is in Mike Pompeo's new book. It's called Never Give an Inch. It's a good read, highly recommended. First Liberty Institute is fighting for what matters most.